Ordinary Voices is sponsored by RCL Worship Resources. RCL Worship Resources is creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Their team of gifted writers and editors are creating worship planning materials to support congregations and leaders. Visit RCL Worship Resources to see their broad spectrum of resources. They're here to make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. RCLresources.com. Worship that works for you. Go ahead and... Uh, so we're going to do this. Okay. We could talk all day, you know. Yeah. So, well, this is... I just enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Es war tief in einer Bar Mitten in der Wüste this is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen for the extraordinary stories dwelling inside every ordinary voice. Guests on the show are not always authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation, then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good cam counselor. Good cam counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, New Pathways of Hope. In the last Ordinary Voices show, we heard a high school teacher express concern about teenagers using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate their depression and anxiety. In this show, we move from high school up to college and from addiction to addiction recovery. There's been a world of progress made in terms of addiction recovery, but the stigma of addiction remains. Although I'm not so sure stigma is the right word. Most people just don't understand either addiction or recovery. So to prepare you to enter a world you may not be familiar with, I invite you to consider the Grant Study. The Grant Study was launched in 1939. It identified 268 physically and mentally healthy males at Harvard University from the classes of 1939 to 1944. These were the best and brightest our nation had to offer. They completed college, fought in World War II, came home and became artists, capitalists, senators, and even a president. The research lasted 75 years and followed these men from college until death. And this is what they learned. Addiction to alcohol destroyed many lives. Some of the most brilliant professionals turned to alcohol to self-medicate their own depression, anxiety, and a sense of worthlessness. One of the leading factors determining a person's long-term mental and professional health was the presence of loving, nurturing, and warm relationships with peers and parents. Why is this important? Today, many people believe in a fallacy, 
that the World War II generation, the greatest generation, sucked it up and toughed it out. They were not like these overly emotional, hypersensitive, spoiled, soft millennials who need constant reaffirmation and self-worth. The greatest generation may have defeated many forces, but they did not defeat addiction, nor did they overcome depression, anxiety, or abuse. Their silence may look good to the neighbors, but it destroyed the family behind closed doors. Most people in the study were desperate for affection and a sense of self-worth. Today, people like my guest Patrice are trying to open those closed doors and create new pathways of hope for those who used to have no alternative. If you work with students, either in high school or college, you know the world is far from being overwhelmed with affection. My apologies for the quality of this first soundbite. This is a one-person show and my checking sound levels was louder than I expected it to be. Let's put that aside and meet our guest. How do you introduce Patrice to the world? Starting with your name. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so my name is uh, Patrice Salmeri. I serve uh, Augsburg University as the Executive Director for Recovery Advancement, which um, really talks about how to advance recovery efforts, recovery resources, both at our university and throughout the country at other colleges and universities. So I had the opportunity to travel and help programs start. Um, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I love working with this age group. I think uh, students or young people that can recover from addiction at this age can go on to lead beautiful, wonderful, meaningful lives and serve other people in the meantime. So. Yeah, so I've been at the university since 2001. The program, the step up program at that time was five years old, and the former director was retiring. It was my dream job at the time because it put together everything I'd done in my career up till then in one package. So I could teach, I could talk in chapel, I could uh, counsel with students, I could work with a team, supervision and um, just really bring all my talents and gifts and assets to a place that um, respected that and honored that and was interested in that. Step Up is a collegiate recovery community on the campus of Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is the largest residential collegiate recovery community in the nation. Their staff of experienced leaders and licensed counselors take an innovative approach in addressing mental health as well as addiction recovery with students attempting to earn a college degree. Patrice grew up on Long Island and fled New York for Kent State University, close to my own home, where she played both softball and field hockey. What was your major there? I was a, a physical education and health major. Okay. Teaching. Okay. Teaching and coaching. So my, my did you actually was. go out and coach then afterwards? I did. I went. Uh, I I went to uh, Davis and Elkins College in West Virginia, and was a teacher and coach there for five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always laugh about that because I got a free scholarship from Davis and Elkins. Did College you really? Because of my last name. 
Oh, funny. <laughs> I never even until that, that point, yeah. I never, I never even thought about it's, it. It's very similar to Augsburg as far as uh, size, mm. and uh, it's a little college up on a hill, and fantastic athletics. They had Division One field hockey there, and so I got I, I coached softball, and we had all the athletes that were Division One, but we have were Division Two softball, so. We had a great team, went to national several times. And oh, fine. It was really a, a great time in my life, yeah. How long were you there? I was there five years, from okay. uh, 82 to 87. Were you teaching then, too, or just coaching? I was coaching full-time and teaching just, um, uh, like, adjunct faculty, okay. instructor of different classes, and then I was a residence hall director. Okay. I was pretty young still. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. fresh out of school. So, <laughs> yeah. so when do you make this transition? Uh, I mean, have you... Did you make a transition out of sports? Into yeah, areas? you know, when I, um, after I left Davis and Elkins, I went to work at Trinity International University in Chicago and uh, coached and taught there. Okay. Um, and went to seminary. Oh. Yeah. And uh, it was an E-free um, seminary, and there were a lot of people in my corner. I shouldn't say a lot. There were a few people in my corner, but there were more people that said women couldn't be pastors. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the pressure got to me after a while. And I started going to the counseling program instead and um, then started taking classes at a community college nearby in, in addiction mm-hmm. and found my passion. Listening to Patrice makes me think of Alex, the high school teacher in the last show. Alex was told you can minister to people in a variety of ways, You don't have to be a pastor. Patrice has a very strong pastoral presence. You can hear it in her words. And one could say she is ministering without being a pastor. However, it would have been more life-giving had it been her choice. For the record, the Evangelical Free Church of America still does not ordain women. So when you go to the start getting into this counseling stuff mm-hmm. and start look, talking about uh, recovery and right. recovery. What about that sparked you and said, this yeah. is my home? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it, it really became personal because I realized that was my family growing up. Oh. Um, my, my mother had been addicted and um, we lived a very um, dysfunctional family life and didn't know it really. I just thought everybody was like that, right? Right, right. And then I go to college and and uh, afterwards go into this program and just see, wow, this is what... And I, I decided right then I never wanted another kid to live through that ever and uh, decided I would help people in whatever way I can to not keep the cycle going. I mean, that just, that, I don't know, that just speaks volume about dysfunction in a family. You don't realize right. how many kids don't realize... Right. The dysfunction that they're growing exactly. up in, right? Yeah. When did you graduate from that program then? From that? Maybe 89 or 90. Okay. Yeah. That's hitting a time, I mean, 89, 90, that's kind of the crack epidemic exactly. that's going on, yeah. right? Yeah, right on. Right. Yeah. It was uh, exactly what was going on. And, you know, when you look at the difference between uh, pure cocaine and crack cocaine, and it's really just a, a little one-step difference, and yet white, upper-class lawyers and using cocaine in the bathroom, and then you have this whole population of marginalized people that are smoking crack and 
uh, getting arrested. And I mean, prisons are full of people who, from the crack cocaine right. epidemic, you know. And and you see that, and then you look now at the opioid epidemic. It's it's repeating. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And people, you know, it's it's interesting and. You know, people throw around that word right now, opioid epidemic. I, I'm really tired, actually, of hearing the, the statement because it's been around forever in marginalized populations. Right. But when it hit the suburban white kids started dying, then all of a sudden it became an epidemic, you know. And uh, that speaks volumes about how we treat people across the continuum. You know? And I sit there and I think about just that comment right there when it hits that white populations you're right on because this opioid addiction is hitting a demographic that is your working class. Exactly. And as corporate jobs yep. start to leave, there's this depression, suicide, mm-hmm. addiction, mm-hmm. and um, to the level that I think it's for the third year in a row, the life expectancy in the United States has declined Decreased, yep. because of these issues. Yeah, and we're losing a whole population of young people. Those are the people who are actively dying on a regular basis every day. I mean, right. What do you lose, 370 people a day? I made a decision not to pursue the details of Patrice's family story, mostly because I didn't want that to be the story. I wanted to focus on recovery, not the process of destruction. And even though I don't want to focus on it, the destruction is real and ever-present among those seeking recovery. Let that statistic sink in for a moment. 370 people a day are dying from addiction. Those 370 people have parents, siblings, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and friends. Addiction is a crisis affecting many lives. I ask her a question I really want to know the answer to. Are people genetically wired for addiction, or is addiction chemically linked to a substance? How much is it drug? Mm-hmm. How much is it biological? Sure. Or is it a combination of the yeah. two? Yeah. Well, I definitely think it's nature and nurture. I think there is a, a disease concept to addiction. I mm-hmm. think um, when your brain gets hijacked and you no longer have a choice to use or not, I think that is absolutely true. I think there's generational issues where you see it go back, you know, your grandparents. You know, you see that a lot with alcohol and particularly males. But I think it's both. I think you can't really separate out. I think there's no blame game in it. You know, it's uh, something that is, you're powerless over. It just happens. Your brain just reacts. And you know, right now I'm, I'm doing um, some work on trauma and addiction. And it's the same thing. I mean, if you have trauma in your background, especially when you're young and your brain's developing, your brain actually doesn't develop in certain areas. And you mix that with addiction and, you know, you're, you're going to get hit by a train pretty soon, you know. What kind of stuff do you find from trauma? You say brain development? Yeah, so um, the part of your brain that is responsible for emotions or in flight, fight and flight, um, the amygdala, um, doesn't develop during trauma because it's suppressed and... Um, It can develop as you work through your process, but um, that's one of the parts of the brain that that just doesn't grow. It stays really small. Wow. And uh, it's it's fascinating to see 
neuroplasticity and how the brain can come back and new neural pathways that you can create on a regular basis where we once thought that your brain stopped developing at age 18, that was it. And now we know that you're not even fully developed until 25, 26, and then you still have the opportunity to uh, discontinue some brain uh, pathways and create new neural pathways that are more fitting for that time in your life, which you find a lot with addiction, you know. Right. People talking about um, not feeling good enough is a good example. That's mm -hmm. a, a very common phrase that you're when people are working through recovery and either from trauma or addiction or both. So you continue to tell yourself that you've, you've heard that maybe and you've heard it from a lot of people and it gets ingrained in your brain and you keep telling yourself that. It's like a pathway in your brain, almost like um, ruts from uh, a, a dirt road, you know. But our brains are so fascinating that if you stop telling yourself that and you start telling yourself, I am worthy or I am good enough, you'll create a whole new neural pathway that will um, help you recover and, and grow into the future and you never have to use that other one again. So our circuits in our brain are just fascinating. And so, I think that's a good reason for hope too is that, you know, you mentioned that in your questions that it would be, it wouldn't be very hopeful if you knew that that was it, you were stuck with what you had. But when you hear that you can create new neural pathways and your brain can, can, can develop and the amygdala can grow and you'll have more new emotions and that's really hopeful and fascinating. I mean, it gives you a spark to say, yeah, I can keep going. Right. I can have something different than what I've had, you know? Right. Our brains are genetically formed for hope and new life. Even if an unhealthy pathway becomes rutted into our programming, we can, through human interaction and medication, form new pathways and a new beginning. Hearing this makes me think of a conversation I've had with my wife. We often think of new life for victims, but... Have you ever considered new life for the perpetrators? My wife did. It broke her heart to think people are programmed to be perpetrators, and there's no way out. What kind of life is that? Peggy had a real crisis of faith, mm -hmm. um, and it had to do... We've had, had to work with um, reporting and dealing with uh, sexual abuse of minors. If you are programmed that way, what hope do you have? Mm -hmm. How That's a horrible way to mm -hmm. live. For the perpetrator? For the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we sit there and think right. of the victim a lot of time, but if you're wired that way, right. but now if you sit there and think, okay, there is this process of thinking, right. you, you can create a new normal, or at least... You can. It. I mean, there's certain um, diseases of the brain that affects some people that are perpetrators, that um, like a sociopath, there's really not much hope for a sociopath mm -hmm. other than to take medication and know right and wrong and, and have a structured life like that. Mm -hmm. So if a person who's, who's a perpetrator has, is a sociopath, that's a little harder. Mm -hmm. But if it's something that, that you grew up in and you're acting out what you grew up in, there's more hope for you than anybody right. because you get to recover too. Right. Now you have to work through all another series of trauma because not only have you been traumatized, but now you traumatize other people. Right. So that's a long, long journey of forgiveness and uh, making amends. And New life is possible for both the victim and the perpetrator, and often they're one and the same. 
something all of us should consider when reading the news. Patrice said it's a long, long journey of forgiveness, and that works right into a word, a mission, a truth, which is her foundation, hope. That word hope. Yeah. In our kind of conversations, even sidelined, not necessarily with me, hope is a word that you use a lot. Yeah. And what does that word mean to you? Yeah. Well, you know, in the terms that I use it, I use it a lot because when people first come to recovery, I've been gifted with the potential to see them down the road. So I, I find a lot of hope in that. So I can hold that hope for them until they can hold it for themselves. And the same for parents, you know. I can see their young person down the road. And it might not be the same plan that the parents had when they were little, and this is what they're going to be, but I, I've been gifted with that potential to do that. And for me, that is motivating. It is um, powerful. It's um, something that changes lives. I mean, for myself, even just holding out hope that I could recover from my own wounds as a youngster, that is really, really motivating and powerful. Mm -hmm. That there is something else besides that way to think and live and act. And, um, it's not instantaneous, though. No. You may have to hold out hope for a very, very long time. Right. And there are times when it feels hopeless. Mm -hmm. But that's when you rely on people that have gone before you that have done it and surrounding yourself with support and people that can help you keep going. During our conversation, Patrice made reference to all of us being wounded healers. I assume Henry Nowen, the author of the book Wounded Healer, has in some way formed her thoughts in this matter. So I went to my copy of the book and found these words from Nowen. For hope makes it possible to look beyond the fulfillment of urgent wishes and pressing desires, and offers a vision beyond human suffering, and even death. A Christian leader is a person of hope, whose strength in the final analysis is based neither on self-confidence derived from their personality, nor on specific expectations of the future, but on a promise given. People in recovery, no matter what that recovery might be, need people like Patrice who have the ability to look beyond the immediate reality and see hope, and more importantly, be that hope until the wounded can be it themselves. We don't think about the emotional journey of those who are counseling oh, and working yeah, exactly. with those that yeah. you have to be... You really have to be bolstered to, to work. And there's a, a, a really big push in self-care. Um, I know when I first got into the field, I was taking on everybody's issues, and, you know, I fortunately had a wonderful supervisor who said, you know, where's your faith in this? Mm -hmm. You know, where's your faith that, that person's going to do well? And that it's their journey. I have a wonderful person in my life now who says, it's not your journey, it's their journey to walk. Mm -hmm. And you're just intersecting at a time where they can need that support. And so... That's always helpful to reflect upon. It's not as easy as it sounds, though. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Well, because there, there has to be some entity in your life right. that helps you keep that balance of exactly. things. Yeah. Because that was one of the things that I was not prepared for as a pastor. Mm. 
I was not prepared to know everybody since. Sure, sure. And you didn't yep. realize how much yeah. there's this this need for people to tell yeah. you these things and to carry that burden with that you all the time is, yeah. is really, really hard. Yeah, I have a story. I, I won't share the story, but I have a story of a young man that I just cannot shake. Yeah. And it's I heard it 20 years ago. Yeah. And till to this day, it just makes me cry and just weep for this kid who really was a sociopath and the things that he did. And I really believe that we're all wounded healers. Mm-hmm. That that motivated, you know, if I hadn't turned what happened to me into something good, it'd be a, I'd be a ter- totally different person. Right. You know, because um, I find I have to pour into people all the stuff that I've been given. Right. And if I don't have people to pour into it, it's just stifled. And, right. You know, so that's why I love my work with the students. Is right. over the years, it's just been constantly pouring and giving and taking and just watching them. I mean. It's jumping the, it's jumping the gun on where yeah, I want go to go, but I've yeah. got to ask the question because yeah. you just opened that door. Is that the hardest thing about the transition to your new yes, position? Yes, absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just talking about that this morning. It not having daily contact with students and that give and take has definitely been the hardest part of my job. Right. Um, going from, you know, being responsible for a hundred students to now sharing the program with other colleges and universities so they can have that same experience is, is a wonderful and, and very much needed work. But I miss the students terribly. You know, yeah. Always. Yeah. I always will. You know. yeah. It's just, I love when they come back as alumni and share what they're doing and going to graduations and watching. Or right now there's orientation for new students going on right now and so much hope in that room, you know. Right. Again, Patrice's life reflects the wisdom of Henry Nowen. Nowen wrote, For one needs another to live, and the deeper they are willing to enter into the painful condition which they and others know, the more likely it is they can be a leader. Years ago, my cousin went to Augsburg to study and play football. I remember my aunt telling me he transferred out of the school because it was too much of a party place for him. We talked about this, which led into this conversation. So it's interesting that you come 10, 15, between 10 right. and 15 years later, right. and there's a, um, an addiction recovery program mm-hmm. working with kids. Is it, was it started right. in 2001? Or? No, actually it actually started in 1997. 97. The concept was um, kind of arose in 95 when some students that... Uh, found it difficult to be in recovery and be on college campus, said, we need something else. And um, then the director of the class program, who became the first director of, of Step Up, Don Warren, um, just started racking his brain and saying, what can we do for these students? And uh, wound up connecting with uh, Dave Haddon from Hazelden, and the two of them proposed this pilot to the president at that time, and he said, okay, pilot program for a year, and I mean, the rest is history. It just wow. continued to grow, and people did well. And I mean, the first five years, you know, it's kind of a rocky start because it's new and nobody's doing it. There were only two schools that were doing it at the time, uh, Rutgers and Texas Tech, and very different programs. Tech was a, a counselor training program. Rutgers grew out of the health, um, 
health system on campus. So a lot of prevention, a lot of uh, assessments to see where people are at. And, and Augsburg wanted to have a, a comprehensive program with a residence hall because we believe that recovery happens in community. So it was very important to have that component. Ordinary Voices is about listening to the thoughts of ordinary people in hopes we can build a better understanding of ourselves and each other. So thank you for listening. If you're interested in hearing more Ordinary Voices, go to the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Past shows are available on every format where podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you just want something to read, sign up to receive the devotions on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. The devotions are turned into short prayer podcasts to help people find time to pray in a busy world. Ordinary Voices is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Anyone who commits to $10 a month, that is $120 a year, will receive a beautiful set of greeting cards uniquely designed from nature photos I've taken over the past two years. Support Ordinary Voices now to receive your gift. Also, check out RCL Worship Resources creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Visit rclworshipresources.com and make your worship planning experience creative, fun, and easy. rclworshipresources.com, worship that works for you. Now let us return to the thoughts of our guest. generation going to college mm-hmm. was given Animal House yeah. oh, as the benchmark yeah. of what college and I still remember mm-hmm. going to Animal House with my dad mm-hmm. who is as ethical mm-hmm. and upright as a human being as yep. I know but my dad laughed through that movie and he goes college is just like that wow. and you, I sat down to watch that movie about two years ago mm-hmm. and I couldn't watch it yeah it's no longer right. funny to me. Exactly. It is actually sick. Yep. You know, and so, I had the same impression though when I went away to school that even though I was going to be in athletics, I knew that it was you know I was going to be able to drink, and because at that point the college was uh, at eighteen, you could drink near beer they called it, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and then fraternities and sororities were everywhere. Right. Everywhere. And, and a lot sure. of college campuses are still like that. Absolutely. You know, sure. You know, yeah. You know, they still list off the twenty top party schools in the country right you know and and i would you know we're not immune to use on campus i don't think any campuses the work to try and have a harm reduction model for students who are not addicted who are um you know just thinking that's the way to live and Mm -hmm. that's what you do from thursday till Mm -hmm. sunday has been you know the posters and going to different sports teams and telling them this is what happens and getting ncaa grants and having a, a focus on this is what can happen to you if you continue, not only if you become addicted or, or have that tendency, but the violence that happens because of alcohol and drugs and the, uh, the deaths that happen because you get in a car or you're, the abuse that happens because you're date raping somebody or, you know, it's just on and on and on and on. So I think there's a lot more focus on that in right. college campuses now and a lot more uh, prevention efforts, I right. think, that we see now that are required you know we every school uh takes well i don't know if every school takes it but every school has the opportunity to have um funding from um 
drug-free schools. It's, it's, it's now drug-free and violence-free schools program from the government, and, and you have to fill out a, uh, every two years a plan on what your campus is going to be like to, to um, avoid these things. And, you know, we, we're fortunate because we get to include the, the recovery program in that, which right. is uh, very influential, I think, on the rest of campus. Right. You know, there's people who don't want to use, who hang out with people who can't use. Right. Um, I mean, I wish at some point to do a study on how it's influenced the campus would be pretty remarkable, you know, right. to see right. how that yeah. invades different places, you know. If you're not familiar with Step Up program, how would you how would you describe that? Sure. And and you kind of mentioned Texas Tech and, and uh, Rutgers, Rutgers, mm -hmm. and they had different models, right? Um, and hinted a little bit about the community aspect. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe that to yeah. people that don't know? Right. Um, so I would say the Step Up program is designed for young people who. Um, are in recovery from, from drug and alcohol addiction, who want to pursue their education. Um, at Augsburg would be pursuing their undergraduate degree um, in a safe environment that fosters growth, allows for accountability, and gives you the opportunity to flourish with your peers in, in a safe environment, I would say. Yeah. Community in, in influenced? I mean, like you're taking it into the dorm rooms. Right. It's really is what's, what's what's critical, right? Absolutely. I, I think mm -hmm. every program I try to help start, I say that the a residence hall is is a must for your program. Yeah. Right. And they always want to do that last. They want to say, well, let's get the program started and then add that. And I really say start with that because that's where it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I, the program itself. Uh, you know, counselors vitally important. Uh, director vitally important. If you stripped it all down and had just a community, there'd be a lot of recovery that would happen. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Because that's where you live. I mean, that's where you, right. you go to school all day and you have your challenges and you come home and you have your peers. Right. And, and you work through things and you have similar interests and you have similar challenges and you learn to work together and you learn about leadership and you learn about how to uh, manage conflicts and how to wash dishes in a, a suite of 15 people where nobody wants to wash dishes. Right. I read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and that mm. became my benchmark for my life and mm. I've just been, and Bonhoeffer always says, you know, anybody that wants an idealized community where everything gets along is the worst force. Exactly. The, the most exactly. destructive. Good yep. communities deal with the crap. Exactly. Right? right. And that's like, friends have a way of holding people accountable right. more than a counselor can. Absolutely. More than a parent. Right. You know that. I mean, peers are powerful, and, and they can be powerfully good, and they right. can be powerfully destructive. So yeah. you want to hang out with people who are right. working, working a good program and really committed to recovery. kind of goes back to what we were saying about counselors, because mm -hmm. if you take on your friend's burdens without right. having any self-care, right. it's going to be equally destructive. Yeah. And, uh, you can't operate from an empty tank. You have right. to keep filling it up. You know? There's the kids' issue, and you deal with that. Mm -hmm. You also deal with the parents. Yeah. How do you minister to the parents? What are those mm -hmm. consistent things that you see that are yeah. hard for them to deal with? Yeah. I, I think the primary message for parents 
I'd say over and over again, it's not your fault. I think most parents feel the burden of I did something wrong and now my young person is this way. And I want to lift that off right away and say it's not your fault. You know, disease is not anybody's fault. Um, there's nothing you could have done differently um, unless you're using with your young person that uh, caused them to become that way. So I think that's the first thing I would say to parents. I think they need to work their own journey parallel to their young person's journey. That how do you get as well as you can to be supportive and live alongside a person in recovery? Because you can't. It's not a fifty-fifty deal. It's a hundred-hundred. You know, it's like mm. being in a relationship where, you know, we can't work fifty-fifty. You have to come together as a full whole person to be able to be with another full whole person. And, Right. Um, so I would say that to parents that find a community of support, whether it be Al-Anon or Families Anonymous, where you can have hope and and work your own journey because it is a journey for mm-hmm. sure. I'd also say um, it takes time. It's not a a quick fix. You know, I know a lot of people will put their students in treatment over the summer, hoping that they'll be ready to start school in the fall. And it doesn't happen in a linear passion, uh, fashion. It's uh, up and down. You know, two steps forward, one step back, right. and to be prepared for that. But I also said that there's lots of ways to be supportive, too. Like when students come home for break, not to have alcohol in the house. Even if that's some tradition that you do in your family, to say, well, this year we're going to change that around, you know. Because that's really saying, I value your recovery, and I value what you are doing. Uh, not going to the racetrack, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, that um, really support and affirm the person's journey so they feel comfortable coming to the house or coming home for a holiday or how important is a parent's role in that recovery and probably the other thing I'll say to parents is you're powerless over that young person and that is the hardest pill to swallow for anybody that you are powerless but the affirmation and the coming alongside and uh, working your own program is, is really important and that will solidify a really nice relationship going forward The wisdom Patrice just shared, I believe, works for all parents, regardless of addiction recovery. The decisions adult children make are not always the fault or the credit of the parents. Adult children have their own journey, and parents have theirs. The two journeys will intersect, but not always. In the end, parents are powerless over their adult children. Remember, though, a parent's powerlessness is a foundation of a child building self-esteem and a sense of accomplishment. Again, returning to the grant study, for adult children to be healthy, happy, and successful, the best we parents can do for them is establish warm, loving, nurturing relationships. The relationship is what helps us endure difficulties. Spirituality in in recovery. Huge. Um, it's interesting because it's hopefully in a bigger picture of spirituality, right? Right. I mean, can you say something about sure. that? Or? Sure. This is where I, I, I rely on multiple pathways to recovery and not, not only the 12 steps because I believe that everybody has their own path to a higher power and what that means, whether it be a, you know, a, a Christian path or a Buddhist path or whatever you decide is your faith journey. Um, I think without a sense of something bigger than yourself, 
you lose hope. I think if you can see that there's something bigger yourself that that loves you, that cares about you, that cares that you're in this world, um, that's a, a real source of hope, and that's what um, really have to lean on to mm-hmm. have a, a recovery journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. That's the thing I, I mean. I struggle with in communicating people is I think that kind of broader understanding of spirituality mm-hmm. is consistent with Christian scripture. Yeah, very clear. God speaks in multitude of languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you're going around and talking to campuses, mm-hmm. right? And um, big demand. Yeah, I get calls all the time. Um, I probably travel once a month to a college campus, anything from um, Metro State here locally to down to Texas or out to Nevada. Um, I just talked to Stanford out in California, so uh, Albany, New York. Yeah, they just people want this. Um, last year, um, the National Office of Drug Control Policy sent a letter to all college presidents saying that they thought that every campus should have a collegiate recovery program. And a lot of people are responding to that letter. Um, the Association of Recovery and Higher Education, which is the, the, the uh, group that oversees all the collegiate recovery programs, is um, growing rapidly. We've gone from, I mean, 15 years ago, we've had three three colleges, well now it's 16 years ago, three colleges to now there's 100, 150 members. Wow. You know, so they're popping up all over the place. So when you go and talk to a school, like somebody calls you up and says, Teresa, we, we're interested in what you're doing, mm-hmm. we want to hear about it. Right. And so you come and kind of deliver what your your model to them? Or yeah, we, we work through. In the development. Yeah, I mean, really every, every campus is so different, so, you know, there's not a a single um, model that you can just plop onto a campus because every campus is so different. So really, the first things I do is is talk about um, what what is your mission of your school because it has to fit within the mission of the school. And then what are what are the words that your president uses about your campus? You know, does he talk about leadership? Does he talk about growth? Does he talk about um, developing young people? Because those messages are messages of hope for recovery. Um, so we spend a lot of time just talking about that first. Because um, you want it to be successful. You want to intersect with as many messages as you can to uh, accentuate your, your point that this is needed. Um, so when, you, when you're talking to a group, I, what, what is, who are the entities that you're talking to? Is, what level? Is it administrators, boards? Yeah, uh, it's... Um, Everyone has been different. Typically, I would say the more, most often it comes out of student affairs, people in student affairs, hmm. um, either deans or vice presidents or even students are saying, we really want this on our campus. What are the roadblocks you run into? Yeah. Administration saying we don't want those people on our campus because they think that Identifying people in recovery says we have a drug problem. And really, identifying people in recovery says you have 
wonderful people who want to go to your school that are in recovery, that will be your best students, that will have high GPAs and um, high abstinence rates. And so they're really making a decision that's not beneficial for their campus because they don't want to admit there's an issue. And these people are there. There will be more people that will come. And I say to the students, we want you on our campus, you know. These are the students that we, that put Augsburg on the map, you know. These are the students that go on to be doctors and lawyers and dentists and teachers and pastors. And And there are some professions where it's it's very difficult on on a medical school application to put that you're in recovery because they frown upon it Hmm. and they don't trust people and they think they're going to be the weaker students and they're not going to answer their pagers and I had the opportunity to speak at a, a conference and it was going back and forth with the people who were accepting students into medical school saying no and I'm saying yes these are the people you want yeah. so being creative about how to talk about your recovery journey um, in ways that uh, people can see it as an asset versus a challenge you know? so you're I mean it kind of opens the second level because and this is true of any student recovery or not there's mm-hmm. a certain environment you can control in college right but there's that entry into the um, outside world yeah. where it's not controlled. Right. How, how do you guys help with that kind of transition mm-hmm. into the yeah. next that next step? Certainly, um, helping people with internships, uh, resumes. You know, we have uh, the Stroman Center on campus that helps that, and talking with them about how to use recovery language um, without identifying a person. Um, like the teaching profession is another one. They really don't want to hear that you use drugs and alcohol if you're a teacher. And so we try to help people create a resume that, that reflects what they've done, um, the leadership opportunities they've had in language that is um, more common to that profession. We talked to a, um, a Fortune 500 company when we were talking about resumes, and we asked them flat out, what, who would you rather have on this on put it on your resume or not he says I would rather hire somebody who has fallen and gotten back up than somebody who's never fallen before Mm. and that was very refreshing to hear Mm. but that was one company would that that would not be the norm in the four hundred I don't think so and then you you know some students are faced in their internships with um, you know the culture of that office is to have happy hour or to all go out together or Mm -hmm. you know so then that's they face that right off the bat rather than facing it once they get into the work world and how to navigate that world, you know. Right. Anything else that you that I missed on here? You know, I think that uh, young people in recovery are probably the most brilliant and creative people I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And when given the chance, they flourish and live and give back mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Right. Reflecting on Patrice's words, my thoughts kept being drawn to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In the church, the washing of feet are connected with Jesus giving a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. struck a chord with me as I listened to Patrice because the movement of this event is all about humility. The one who washes must humble themselves to wash, and the recipients must humble themselves to allow their feet to be washed. Most people get really nervous when a pastor suggests washing feet. Frankly, they don't want to be that exposed. 
they don't want to be that vulnerable to another. In a strange way, showing our feet to another reveals this truth. Of critical importance in the washing of the feet event is that Jesus washed Judas's feet. He humbled himself to the one who abandoned him and refused to give up loving him even until the end. Humility is necessary to both love and receive love. Those who humble themselves, even if forced to, discover the depth of this statement and live it more fully in the public arena. New pathways of hope are formed in the brain when in our most vulnerable state we discover we are loved. It frees those who experience love to travel into the deepest wounds of our neighbor, to proclaim love, and begin working new pathways of hope in the stranger. These new pathways of hope form the building block which the Grant study showed was critical for success in the business world and happiness in our personal lives, loving, nurturing, and warm relationships with peers and parents. No one knows that better than those who have discovered new life through recovery. That's our show. I want to thank Patrice for sharing, and I want to thank you for listening. Maybe after listening to the show, you can seek to engage the world in a different way. Instead of only seeing the wounds, perhaps you might become a wounded healer, helping those in need discover new pathways of hope yourself. It's as simple as loving as you have been loved. My next show, we stay on the college campus. Actually, we jump across the river to the University of Minnesota, where we'll explore inclusivity in the athletic department and meet a man formed by grace. Until then, check out the website ordinaryvoices.org to follow along. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the donate button on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Remember, those who support at least at $10 a month will receive a beautiful set of greeting cards. I encourage you to check out rclworshipresources.com, where worship planning is made fun and easy. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation. Oh,